Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Let me welcome you again tonight. My name is Sean O'Byrne. I work for the Readings Bookshop. On behalf of the bookshop and on behalf of Black Ink Publishing and the Church of All Nations, thanks so much for coming along tonight for this event with David Maher and George Megalogenis talking about David's new book, My Country, Stories, Essays and Speeches. Now, David Maher is that rare, very rare writer who can write extraordinary political journalism and political biography as his book, co-written with Marion Wilkinson, Dark Victory, and his quarterly essays on, on Kevin Rudd, Tony Abbott, and Bill Shorten show, but who has also written on religion, on the arts, on love, and has written one of the best, if not the best, literary biography ever written in Australia, Patrick White, A Life. Talking with David tonight is George Megalogenis, who has in his articles, his documentary series and his books, including The Longest Decade, Australia's Second Chance, and just this year, The Football Solution, made his own extraordinary combination of political journalism, history, economics, and sociology, with the ability always to say more accurately what has happened in Australia and why. We're lucky to have them both here tonight. Please make both authors welcome. So that chuckle. Oh, look, it was an instinctive difficulty. I have sometimes problems with my throat, um, <laughs> which are associated with problems with my mind, which are associated with football. <laughs> Sorry. We're in, we're in Carlton, uh, fortunately or unfortunately, and uh, uh, I did write a little bit about Carlton, but I buried my lead. Uh, I could have written a lot more about yeah, I'm Carlton. I'm sure you could have unloaded on Carlton. Yeah. I could have, but you sort of don't kick them when they're down, do you? Isn't that how it works? trying to read this room. Probably not that many Carlton supporters here. David Ma, thank you. Um, I often look at uh, a big public life like yours and think your CV, you know, the what you do gets smaller and smaller as your acclaim grows. How would you describe yourself now, looking back, as you have been through this process now? It's not like an Andy Griffiths event, by the way, where all the kids are reading the book from start to finish. I know you haven't had a chance to read it from cover to cover, but I know you're already bought into the thesis. But how would you describe yourself now, looking back? Author, journalist, commentator, critic? Oh, hell. Um, sorry. Um, I like that awful description, journalist and writer. And you think, what the f what is the journalism? It's writing, for the most part. Though I've done a bit of television, a bit of radio. Um, um, I'm an explainer. Yeah. I'm an explainer, and I'm trying to explain the delicious and sometimes perplexing contradictions of this country and how it operates and coming at it from all kinds of different angles, some of them a little obsessive, I, I will agree, um, not including football, um, but, but that's what I do. I, I don't know what the category is. My father would have called it, in fact did call it, good, clean, indoor work. <laughs> <laughs> Because, and I'll go through the method in a sec of how you select by somatically and, and whether it was an ordeal or not to read back through all your back history. But you're embracing the country and you're also tackling it. So the angle at which you come at your subject matter, which is the thing you and I both hold near and dear to our hearts, which is Australia and all its complexity. Um, how do you put something like this together without wanting to blow your own brains out? Because I always thought the worst thing you could do was to go back to your back catalogue and read everything you'd written for the last 30 or 40 years. <laughs> well, of course, my approach was instinctive, which was once I said that I would do it, it was a suggestion of my wonderful publisher's Black Ink. Once I said I would do it, I delayed. You know, I did nothing for months. I'm a great believer in the creative powers of delay. Um, and. <laughs> And because um, George is a lot, lot better trained than me, but I was trained as a journalist not to even start thinking about a story until it's almost too late to file. And that I understand that it's only when I begin to panic that I actually begin to think, which is not a joke, it's a terrible aspect of the training of journalism. And when I began to panic about the um, monsters at Black Ink who were coming for me because nothing, I, I finally started to read the material. And I thought I should start with the beginning. I discovered in my attic 
For some reason, I had a manila folder of clippings of my stories from the bulletin in the 1970s, so I didn't have to sit there rather embarrassingly going through old copies of the bulletin to find what I'd written in the public library. And so I was able to start reading. And, um, and it was agony, um, and it was illuminating. I was, I was a beginner. Um, I was a clever beginner, but I was a beginner. Um, and I was writing about a different country. And then I was reading these things, and that's impossible, that's impossible. And then I found a couple of things that still sort of spoke. And that buoyed me up enormously to keep going. But there I was in 1974. I'd been a journalist for about six months, um, a little bit longer, and the Whitlam election of 1974. And in that election, Labor strongholds, particularly in Queensland, nearly fell because Whitlam had started to do good things for Indigenous Australians. And the backlash in North, North Queensland was phenomenally vicious. And so I, just, I was sent up to Cairns and I just walked around with a notebook writing down this um, unguarded race, racist bile that poured out of people because they believed it simply absurd that these good things were being done for Aborigines. And that was the start for me of a, of a, of a lifetime writing about race in politics. And, and this was a time of unguarded racism. And then I've become, of course, very, very, very interested in the way in which racism is guarded and hidden and works its way through the cracks of politics. So it was 1974, that encouraged me a bit. I found an interview, long, a series of interviews that I'd done with John Gorton after mm. he was no longer Prime Minister. And I'm reading these, thinking to myself, well, that's not, that's not bad. Um, <laughs> and then, you know, I'm, I was about... You didn't know it was there, right, when you first I'd, I'd, started I'd forgotten about <laughs> it, and, and there I was, about 25 years old, um, asking John Gorton whether it was true that Errol Flynn had enormous sexual equipment. <laughs> because... <laughs> I'd been to the same school that Gorton had been to, that, John, that, that Errol Flynn had been to, sure, in Sydney. And so I asked him, you know, whether Errol Flynn had enormous sexual equipment, and Gorton replied, I wasn't much interested. <laughs> it's completely wonderful. Um, and that was one of, the first, uh, one of the first political profiles I wrote. So, buoyed up by this a bit, I then went further in, and I found, and I found stuff that I felt still spoke, yeah. I was more optimistic then. I was more of an optimist. I had this notion, if you laid out the facts with a bit of charm and some logic, yeah. they would work. They would change people's mind. And, and I had a lot to learn about, about what it takes actually to change people's minds. Yeah. Because changing people's minds was always part of, of what I, I wanted. So before we get into the nitty-gritty, so the themes that you lay out in the book, because you structure the thing thematically, it's not a chronology. I wouldn't call it's it a both. chronology. It's both. So that so the, the political sections work chronologically. Yes. So um, I had thought that I would do this rigorously logical exercise of starting with the very earliest piece I'd written and moving through relentlessly chronologically Can't to the that. end. And it, I just really, I was, it, it, didn't, it, it didn't work, it didn't interest me. And so I, I realised that I wanted to have a, have a section about history, a section about gay politics, a section about me growing up or sort of fa family stuff, a section about the literary life. Um, and then there's, you know, there's Whitlam, there's Howard, there's there's um, Rudd, there's and, and the politics going through. Yeah, yeah. The politics being the chronological train track, but there are themes yep. on the way through. And I've always been, I mean, we go back a fair way, but I've always been fascinated about the journalists a decade and a half older than me who were socialised, politicised in that Whitlam period. So to walk into a, walk into a, you weren't in the press gallery in 1974, you were covering it from Sydney, but to walk into that world uh, as your formative experience clearly had an impact on the journalist you became. Even the journalist you wanted to be might not have been the person you ended up being, but you can't have helped but be affected by where you started. 
Absolutely. And for me, um, the most important political lesson of my life and the most revealing, I think the single most revealing episode for the, you know, what, what sort of country do we live in was the sacking. Um, uh, <laughs> the afternoon of the sacking, the, the, the editor of the, the bulletin had a wonderful Canadian secretary and she came around to my little cubicle. In those days we worked in cubicles. Um, and she said to me, David, the, um, the Governor General has just sacked the Prime Minister. And I said, Kathy, that's not how it works. Um, <laughs> 1975 tells Australians how radical conservatives in this country can be. It, in 1975, conservatives in Australia bet the house. They bet democracy itself on getting rid of Whitlam. And the Australian population supported them. There are two lessons there. The Australian population was not deterred by the grotesque violation of democratic principle involved in the dismissal of Whitlam. They wanted Whitlam gone too, and they confirmed what Kerr had done. And I think if you've been through that, that furnace, you're never the same again about this country. You know what conservative Australia is capable of. You also know how, how completely dysfunctional a Labor government can be. <laughs> very valuable lessons. Which is also a valuable lesson. Yes. Um, you also know another thing, which the great reformers in Australia are normally torn down in one way or another. They are opposed brutally by the political system. But when, and, and, and usually end up with a, a, real, a humiliating exit from politics. But when we look back to them, they are the ones we admire. And I don't mean just progressives admire, but the whole really, apart from diehard, um, diehard capital L liberals, have got to acknowledge that Whitlam was a foundationally important prime minister in this country's experience. Um, and uh, Keating wasn't entirely irrelevant either, and um, Julia Gillard is looking pretty good. You think Julia is the next one? Um, and yet, all of them, because they were agents of change, were brutally opposed, and yet we look back and we say, they're the ones we admire. Yep, that's them. Well, there's two parts to that. One, obviously, change as it's, as it's um, affected is deeply unpopular, and we're talking about, we'll, we'll bring Julia into it later, but certainly with the Whitlam and Keating experiences, there are landslide defeats for the Labor Party in 75 and 96, slightly different circumstances in 96, because they were asking for another three years on a 13-year term. Yeah. It's equivalent yeah, of four, it was, it was, four years. It was coming to the end. Yeah, it coming to the yeah end. pretty much come to the end. But what is it, especially and through the lens of looking back on your own life's work, what is it about taking them out of, t out of context and out of time that makes their voice resonant today. What is it about them? And we'll talk about Whitlam and Keating in particular, especially Goff. And it can't have been apparent to you at the time because you didn't imagine 20, 30 years down the track that you'd still read the wisdom of Goff and subsequent generations want to know about him, even though their parents or grandparents would never have voted George, for him. It's called Medicare. You know, Goff, Whitlam put into the system against stupendous opposition after campaigning for it for 10 or 15 years, Medicare, and anybody who tries to touch that in Australia, any party that tries to touch that in Australia at the moment will vaporise. Yeah. And, 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 you know, there were a few other extraordinary things he did as well. But Medicare is foundational. Um, this is a country with Medicare. We are not a cruel society like the United States of America. And that was not... Young people today... <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> tend, ..tend to forget about the struggle to achieve what seems now entirely logical. I don't think Australians themselves are, are deeply opposed to change. But I think our political system is organised around opposing change. And, but one, and once change happens, for instance, the equal marriage vote last year, Australia settles down with it at once. 
Admittedly, there are some churches who seem to think that they need special legal privileges to keep on putting the boot into pufters, and you can understand from their deeply Christian point of view the need to do that to preserve what they call their ethos. But apart from them, the Australian society has just settled down with it. And if we became a republic, within a fortnight we'd be scratching our heads saying, really? We were a monarchy? No. <laughs> Tell me another one. We set, it is, it is, we have a peculiarly, we have a peculiar political system which is organised around the notion of preventing the future. But my, my view of this country is that in the end, we get nearly everything right. What I don't understand is why we can't do it roughly as quickly as New Zealand. They're ahead of us, aren't they? True, but you reported it, and I'll go back to Goff in a second. You reported on a guy who, within a year or two of your arrival in journalism, is already past tense. Beyond the things that he did, what is it about his voice today that as I say, when you were reading back through your work, was there something that speaks to the now about his vision? Is just the idea that this guy spoke um, with a dream of the future, and you always set it aside, the you set it against the contemporary voice of sort of political debate. Is that one of the reasons why people like him still echo today? He resonates. He was trying to work out what the best future for this country would be, and. It wasn't just something like Medicare, there was divorce law reform and there were all sorts of, all sorts of um, uh, national institutions which were either founded or strengthened by him. This was in a period where many of you in this room will remember that the, the, the fundamental political struggle in this country was still between the states and the Commonwealth. And that's no longer the case. I mean, there's still, there is still tension between the states and the Commonwealth, but we have lived to see the complete supremacy of the Commonwealth established. Now, there are conservative prime ministers as well who were very keen to see that. But nevertheless, Whitlam was a part of that. He, he, he was a figure who wanted reform. He went to his deathbed arguing in the most tedious way, but importantly, for four-year terms. My God, four-year terms would make such a difference to this country. He also thought a republic would be a good idea, but it's the, it's the intransigent figure. There he was for decades, roaming around cocktail parties, banging on about four-year terms, and I find that completely admirable. Um, he kept on banging on. Keating is keeping on banging on as well to some extent. Um, but, but Whitlam for me was the great towering figure of my, my youth. I came back to Australia because of Whitlam. You know, I, I left Australia thinking I would you know, never return. I would you know, make a life somewhere else. And this was the promise of it. All well, my people pushed of, your people of, out, right? All of, the wogs pushed the... Um the old Australians out. Isn't that the story? You all went to London because that's where the real world was. That's where the real world was. And coming the other way were all the Europeans. All, who knew where the real world was? <laughs> and later on, when I was writing about Patrick White's life, I came to recognise the fundamental decision of his life, the most courageous decision of his life. In 1947, when all the artists were fleeing to London, yeah. And 25 years later, when I felt I had to go to London to live properly, and there was also no aunts there to catch the fact that I was a poofter, um, uh, Patrick White came to Australia. He left London. He left it and came to Australia to be the novelist of Australia. And I recognised them. Wow, that was brave. Really brave. Well, uh, I'm going to dart around a bit. I've got a whole lot of notes, but I'll do the thing that an interviewer should do, which is listen to you <laughs> and then ask a follow-up question based on what you said. Also, shut me up when I go on for too long. That's, That's okay. I don't need to shut him up, do I? Yeah. Tell me to know Australia, do you need to be an outsider at some level? Sorry? To know Australia well, do you need, as an Australian, do you need to have some outsider gene in you? So do you come at your country, do you have to come at your country from a, is a, if you were sort of born and raised in the mainstream, would you have the insights you have? if you didn't have sexuality and politicisation in that order? Yes and no, yes and no. Um, 
You know, if, I, if I'd been straight, um, I think I might have ended up either as a district court judge or county court judge or bishop of a small Anglican diocese would have, <laughs> would have suited. Um, or a football uh, club president. <laughs> no, not a football no, club president. No, George, no. Um, Painfully, shock, coming, shock. Pain, painfully, painfully sorry, coming sorry. to the recognition that I was gay, which, which took a long time, and, and I was in my middle to late 20s before I finally... It also made me a criminal, because in... You know, we're talking about the 1970s, and in the 1970s in New South Wales, there was a six-year prison sentence on offer for people like me having sex. Six years, prison term. And there was corruption, and there was bashings, and there was police madness, and all of that kind of thing. And for me, being a journalist was always about investigating ways in which this country might be a better place. Um, and it was never about abolishing capitalism. It was, it was never about, you know, nationalising the means of production. It was never about any of that. Always from the start for me, it was about the social attitudes and the way in which they were expressed through politics. Yes. I became terribly interested in censorship, and it just, I find the most gut-busting joke of contemporary politics is that the conservative wing of politics in Australia, some of the actual players or their heirs, the people who imposed on this country some of the most rigid censorship in the Western world through the 60s, 70s and 80s now declare themselves crusaders for free speech. <laughs> really? Um, and I was always very interested in, you know, dealing with censorship and all of those things. But the other thing is that I'm not an outsider in other respects, yeah, you know. Yeah, I'm a middle-class, prosperous kid from Sydney, and I went to a private school, and I, you know, went to St Paul's College at Sydney University, and I did articles at Allen Allen and Hemsley, the most, the oldest, most glossy law firm in Sydney, and, and I'm not an outsider in that sense. And one of the most important things to, in my life was a bunch of wonderfully wise lesbians who I met through the National Times. And it was, it was when I was just finally coming to grips with my sexuality, and they said to me, admitting that you're gay doesn't mean that you shed the rest of your life. And I've been both things, you know. I've been Pimble and Oxford Street and newspapers and television. And so, yeah, maybe a bit of outsider, but, um, but it's, a, it's a mix, George, it's a mix. I think we all treasure brilliant outsiders who come to this country and tell us what it's like. But I'm more thinking about the person who grew up in Australia as an outsider, might have a better window um, into who we are. Look, I think, it, I think it absolutely sharpens your curiosity. Yeah, and I know for yeah. you it's sharpened your curiosity because... I wasn't leading you don't, the conversation back this way. You, but, don't, yeah. come from, you don't come from, a, you know, an Anglican, <laughs> an Anglican family from Pimble. I, I, it's a fate I don't necessarily recommend to anybody. But um, <laughs> nevertheless, I've made what I can of it. Uh, yeah, uh, because it sharpens your curiosity. Because what, if, what other people are accepting as normal and just the way the world works, you look at it and you say, well, you know, I don't really have to go to jail for six years for having a fuck. You know, this, this, it shouldn't be like that. And then that unravels all, all kinds of other things. I mean, it's not just as simple as that, of course, but it unravels all sorts of other things. Now, just quickly, it, um, a bit more on the, um, on the sort of research researching yourself in your country because you're mm. selecting articles, speeches, essays and the like to fit in this... Comp it's, I wouldn't... Uh, it's better than a compilation. I'll, I'll give you compilation that is an ugly word, yeah, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, I don't, like, I don't like the word. And it's certainly not that your legacy piece isn't going to be the last thing you put out there. Collection's not quite... It's, it's gorgeous summation. Um, sorry. Um, something like that. Yes, go on. The collected works uh, of no. comrade David <laughs> Maher. <laughs> Um, Progress publishers, yeah. whoever the old Lennon publisher used to be. I can't remember who they were. Um, anyway, as you, as, as, as you looked through it, um, did, you, did you find that you misread your country on the way through? Because we talk about the subject matter, the sort of meta topic is Australia and your love of and you know, frustration with it, because you can only really express it in the two ways. Did you find as you're working your way through that um, you were misreading it 
at any particular point in time. Oh, Did yes. it surprise you on the offside? Of course. Of course. I'm, not, I'm less interested in the cause because we all make bad calls. You could write an entire book on the things you got wrong. All of us could. But the things that surprise you, maybe, maybe um, flesh out a couple of the epiphanies you had looking back on your own thoughts at the time. Um, I was too confident in my early work um, that Australia was on an, in an inevitable trajectory to some kind of progressive um, zone of, yep. of good sense and, 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 and comfort and things. Um, I think Howard came as a shock to me that you could actually, that you could actually um, not reverse, but certainly um, deflect the course of the development of a country's political culture and to some extent the culture of the country itself. But then I became completely fascinated by that. Mm. That was a great, I think, for, for all of us who had been covering, you know, the sort of the, the reform narrative of Labor, yeah. to be brought back to... Um, the twin reform narratives, the, Goff and... Yes, the and twin Volcani. reform yeah. narratives, yeah. to be yeah. brought back to a kind of reality, um, of a different reality under Howard. Um, Patrick White invented a little town called Sarsaparilla, which was full of mean-minded um, uh, but determined people who survived and prospered. And um, the inhabitants of Sarsaparilla in his novels and in his plays. And he died before, um, before John Howard came along. And I wish not so much for his sake, because it would have caused him a great deal of pain, but for hours that he'd been alive through the Howard era. Because John Howard was the Prime Minister of Sarsaparilla. <laughs> and, and, and a brilliant, and a brilliant um, professional politician he was too. Um, he, he knew that Australia. And, and it was a great lesson to remember that that Australia actually never goes away. And in certain hands, it can be organised as a source of power. And that's, that is, that's something for the future of this country as well. It doesn't go away. It's still there. And were you conscious as you were working your way through your own body of work that you fly off the rails, stopped being a journalist and became an advocate or became a little too active and you were making dud calls because you wanted the story to be this when it was that. Because one of the things, I'll preface this by saying, one of the things that always surprised me on the upside, I never expected you to go off the rails during the Howard era, but you wrote some of the best stuff during the Howard era because you were still a journalist primarily. Yeah. Exploring. Um, you weren't... I mean, in bits you were railing against it, but you were railing against it from a position of um, sort of evidentiary rail, strength. Yeah. yeah, But you rail against it by entering the imagination of a man like Howard, working out how he thinks, to enter the, the, the world of his followers and see how they're organised. You, 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 your anger is used not by, not by shrill prose, but your anger is a source of energy to work out what's really happening here and to also call out the man's lies. And, that's, and to call out any politician's lies is a very important task of journalism. And, and I suppose in later years, I've become... I was never really a columnist. Every now and again, I would write a column, and every now and again, um, you know... And that's sort of a much more direct piece of advocacy. This is what I think, this is what should happen. But I don't think there's any chance of persuading or illuminating readers unless you have the narrative, have the characters, do the research, get the story. There are, other, there are, many, the way there are many voices in this book. There's, you're, the, you're the principal narrator, but there are many voices in this book. If it was a series of comic pieces, if that was the path you'd taken, uh, I would have found that a very exhausting read, to be honest. <laughs> no, <laughs> but, with the greatest, with the greatest no, respect to fellow there columns. Are many, yeah. There are many voices. There's, there's, you know, there's me writing about the theatre or me writing about the church or me writing about John Howard or me writing about John Gordon. They are... They're still me. Yeah. But the tasks are different and that's one of the reasons why I organised the book in those big chunks. Um, and, of course, as I'm fascinated by history. I mean, I don't think we can understand who we are, what we're going, what we're doing, unless we also understand lots of our history. And so there's chunks of that in there as well. And I'm afraid that I never ceased to be a lawyer. I fled the law. Uh, yes. I practised law for one day, ladies and gentlemen. 
But it taught you everything you needed to know about journalism. Well, I'd been about two and a half years in a law, in a, in a law firm and I was, I was admitted as a solicitor on a Thursday. I practised on the Friday. And I left for London for my other life on the Monday. Um, the other life I finally came back from. But, but I've also been writing about... Um, I thought I hated the law. But in fact, I love the law. I love the law's possibilities. I love what the law can do to make a civilised society. Mm. Um, and I fear bad law and I fear you know, bad judges and bad courts and things. But I, f I fundamentally love the law. Um, yeah. You keep, um, what, did, what did your legal um, uh, training teach you? Do you keep daily notes? Do you record? conversations, every single conversation, because I've got a lawyer in my family tree, every single telephone conversation has got a note. You do? No, no, I don't. Um, Member uh, of my if I'm, if close I'm, family does. If I'm doing, if I'm doing a story or yeah. researching a story, yes, every, every, um, every note is, you know, I, I make notes of conversations. But do you itemise them the way a lawyer would, which is... Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I even love split, I should learn split that, pins. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, you can't buy proper split pins anymore. The really tall ones <laughs> that you put sheets of paper on and you fold the pin over. They're wonderful things. The split pin is one of the most civilised inventions of the Western world. Have you tried recording stuff on your phone, though? Just note to self, and then not finding it a year uh, later, which is I my don't, problem. I don't do a lot of that. I, I write notes. Um, <laughs> I, Sorry, this, I'm getting very mechanical here. No, 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 but, but uh, I worry for you know, future biographers um, that emails aren't being archived and SMS messages. I mean, some of the most crisp and telling exchanges we ever have with other human beings now are three-line SMSs. And I don't think there is even a way of archiving your SMSs. And, and when I think of the four or five thousand letters of Patrick White's I had by the mm. time I finished that work, and the brilliant, rich, daily commentary on his existence that those letters provided, how in the hell are people going to write biographies about, you know, the contemporaries of today? Um, so please, everybody, ladies and gentlemen, no matter how futile you think it might be, archive your emails. It's really easy. It's really just archive them. Don't delete them necessarily. Don't archive everything. But please, please. And then you give them to the National Library. Yes. Now, can we do uh, Australian character traits? This might seem like a very, very simplistic question, but one of the things you can draw out of this are the things that are embedded in our nature. Yeah. Now, we talk a lot, we and I have talked a lot about this over the, over the years, very, very obedient populace. Where do you think that comes from? It's not just convict upbringing, because it gets reinforced. Um, it's been reinforced over many journeys in our sort of, uh, as a nation. I'm going to preface that by going on a little excursion yeah, yeah, first. Yeah, please, please. George and I share a passion for um, proper material that investigates Australian attitudes that has num numbers attached to it. He you likes know? numbers, he just doesn't admit it publicly. This is the first time, ladies and gentlemen, that David admits that he's... Uh, but I have, written, I have written some numbers pieces and some of them I'm really proud of. And I went back to look at them, some survey material um, in the last few years, 10 or 15 years ago, and I was really proud of them and I thought, that'll really, I'm gonna put that in the book and it will really say what I think the character of Australians, the character of this country is, and it's completely dead. Because it's only, it only speaks to the time yes. in which it's gathered. So the figures, those, those brilliant figures I had for 1986 are dead and buried by 1987 or 88. And they, they just don't live. But the conclusions within them yep. live. Mm. And a long time ago, I started to have this vague feeling that one of the ways of explaining what Australia is like and what Australians are like is to acknowledge how British we remain. And that the source, not just of our institutions, which are obviously British, but the source of so many of our attitudes is British as well. Because we are, in fact, although we declare ourselves larrikins and we mock politicians, which is a very healthy thing in a democracy, 
we actually respect authority. We respect government. No one except Cory Bernardi imagines that you can have a political future in this country by campaigning for small government that does nothing. We, we believe in government doing things for us. That's why we have governments. And we obey those governments and we respect them. Not as much lately as we once did, but that's to do with the collapse that began with Kevin Rudd um, over global warming. But we still respect them. Our philistinism is completely British. The orderliness of our society is also British. I'm thinking all of these things, and David Malouf writes this brilliant quarterly essay in which from, well, David is more than a novelist. He's one of the great thinkers of, in this country's history, and he just brought it all together and an aspect of it that I'd never thought of, which is the language of Australia's foundation. And he, and he argues that the language of the foundation of the United States of America was completely different it was the language of the glorious revolution. It was the language of religious liberty. It was the language of defiance of Britain, actually, though America was to remain a British colony for so long. Nevertheless, it was the notion of building a new society. Australia was founded in the Enlightenment as a prison by Britain, where order, clarity, and actually lawfulness always mattered. And I think they still do. Now, this is, of course, being being, um, being sort of the colour of it all is changing and shifting. But I think underneath it all, as, a, as, a, as a, an explanation of the fundamental nature of this country, we have to keep remembering where we came from. Mm. Whether that's going to change dramatically in 100 years, I mean, it may. It, 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 it probably will. But um, I think that's kind of what we really are. Yeah, our Eurasian self may change it, but yes, certainly our continental self didn't change it. So the thing about the, especially the post-war migration wave after the end of the Second World War, um, most of those migrant waves tended for different reasons to reinforce that sort of obedience. Yes. Respect for law uh, and forgetting as well, because migrants do a lot of forgetting, which is an epic thing that Australia has done since the men came ashore on the 26th of January uh, 1788 from the first fleet. Um, so the forgetting and the obedience are sort of two parts of mm. them. Now, I'm not sure that the 21st century is going to play out that way because we've been peopled by um, a migrant generation that starts at the top of our social tree. So they may want to bend institutions to their... But, but don't forget that, that people coming to, us, to Australia from India and Malaysia, mm. um, they're coming with all of their Britishness that's, that's as well. Some Britishness. And, you know, the British, the British came up with some pretty good ideas on how to govern countries. And you only have to look at the shambles of the United States Constitution to once again welcome the fact that we live in a Westminster system where a president can't go berserk here as they can there. But his, sorry, I've just thought of this. I try not to be too clever now. But the one thing the British were very good at when they ran empire was to divide it, to conquer it. Oh, yes, of course. With no and to empire. steal, of course. Stealing was But with no colonies left, they decided to divide themselves. How does that work? Second part of the question is, should we worry about Trump or Brexit? Sorry, I'm leading, I'm leading you down a certain path to think about it, but the, the what, the British, what the British are going through at the moment is yep. almost... Um, I think we probably differ on this, yeah. but my view is that the same dogs are barking in Australia as are barking in France and Britain and America. Mm. All those dogs are barking here as well. The difference is that our country is in better shape yeah. and is more resilient, and where Brexit can get a majority and Trump can almost get a majority, and Marine Le Pen can get 25, 28, 30% of the vote in France, Pauline Hanson has 6%. She's running on 6%, and that is a measure of a country in fundamentally better shape. Yeah. We're going to go to questions from the audience, but there's 20 questions I haven't been able to ask. And I do want to get to marriage equality in, in, <laughs> in a sec, but yeah. maybe, maybe I'll... I'll do this sort of trick two, three-part question. So if I was asking this at the White House, I get, I'd lose my pass. Apparently, you can't ask more than a single question. Then you have to sit down. 
But the courts will restore your past. Yes, God. Not in Australia, they <laughs> no, won't. Not in Australia, they won't. They said, what, they give Jedos passes? Yes. <laughs> Lock them up. Um, I, want to, I want to think about John Howard, and I want to think about, firstly, the Tampa and the book that you wrote with Marianne Wilkinson. Paul Keating told me about five years after the publication of that book in the twilight of the Howard era, we were doing this interview. So this is 05, 06 for the... Uh, 05, it would have been for the longest decade which came out in 06, and he said, the thing about your book was that's there for all time as a stain on his legacy. Future generations will know what he did, right? So I think as we come into that 2007 election, we see the back of him. Uh, There's a thrilling moment at APEC where half of Sydney turns up to flash their behinds at him. Remember the Bare Bottom protest? Yeah, before All the chase protests. Were the chasers the dressing chasers. in Arab gear and driving down Macquarie Street? It was street quite a, if you think about it. They had to eventually stop and, and alert the security people to their own presence. Yes. <laughs> I can't even remember what the, the... One of the bums in Hyde Park was a very, very funny protest. I, I know you covered it, and I can't even remember um, what that was about. Oh, it was just, it was just wonderful rudeness, really. It was a mass mooning of the... There was some, yes, there was some mass mooning, and it was wonderful. And there were also people dressed as... It, there was dressed as police singing in the street. Anyway, it was a it was a great time. So it was a great time. So somewhere between the apology, early two thousand and eight, and signing the Kyoto Protocol and the Oceanic Viking, which is in the second half of two thousand and nine. Yeah. And this is even before you do the climate change story of Kevin. We won't go there. Um, John Howard looks different to me today than he does in that oh one through to oh eight period. So whilst I I can see a you know person who who took Australia to a place it shouldn't be, transporting uh, asylum seekers to um, you know, tiny yeah. holes in the Pacific. Um, now, it still looks to me like he handled that issue uh, with a modicum of below-the-line humanity, which is at some point they all came here. Oh, Pres George. No, no, hold on. I'm just playing devil's advocate here. Present yeah. generation, because they have so completely buggered the thing up on both sides... Uh, are all clutching to this idea that the man has still at least had a moral compass. Does this work, or have I so totally inflamed you we won't get no, any questions a, from the floor? It wasn't a moral compass at all. It was a political compass. Because he, he couldn't get away from it from a single was, term. How it was too smart to, to issue the kind of clarion declaration that Kevin Rudd did. They will never come to Australia. Yeah. We're just locked into honouring that promise. Yeah. Their being on Manus and Nauru has no deterrent effect whatever on the boats. The boats are stopped by our boats. That's how it operates. Yeah. It's not by people sitting in refugee squalor in Indonesia saying, oh, I might end up on Manus. No, because you can't get your boat anymore to Christmas Island. That's why. But these people are here. They're people there. They are human sacrifices to the illogical politics of Kevin Rudd, which was then taken over yeah. by, by the conservative governments that yeah. followed. But, but that was, he left a bit of wiggle room. The last man off on Pacific, Art, Pacific Solution Mark I, the last man out that came to Australia deliciously, his name was Aladdin, and he was completely maddened by the time he returned. He yeah. was insane before he got to Australia. The cruelty is just sort of unending. Can I just end by saying, this was John Howard's daring radical conservatism. Yeah, yeah. I've got a theory which probably won't, um, won't survive any kind of close examination, that it happens every 25 years. In the yeah, very early 1950s, very early 1950s, yeah. the Communist Party Dissolution Act, yeah. with the completely amazing notion that politicians themselves could um, send people to jail, strip organisations of property, no judicial process, the politicians themselves, that was defeated because of a brave, if crazy, Labor leader, Bert Evatt, mm -hmm. and because of the High Court working together. Okay, 25 years later, you've got the sacking of Gough Whitlam. Court didn't work, Labor, Labor was... Interesting theory. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. 25 years yeah. later, you've got Tampa. Um, again, Labor crumpled, no, no use at all, and the courts, the High Court, which gave us Wick and Marbo and has solved so many problems in, the national, in our national history, completely hopeless on immigration law. Um, I'm, I, I'm planning not to be around in the 2025. Next one. When the next that's, one happens. That's, that's, younger people can deal with that. So, okay, so there's left a bit of wiggle room, but the other part about Howard was he was sort of, um, he dominated what, 11 years, but essentially 
most of the first decade of the 21st century has his name on it as a political yep. moment, except all things that were happening in Australia beneath him uh, were way ahead of where he thought the country should be. And there wasn't very little lever pulling he could do, say, on an issue like same-sex marriage, where he could have stopped history. He did. He passed legislation. No, no, he did, but he... It changed the Marriage Act to say that marriage was between a man and a woman. It hadn't hitherto said that. And when the vote was put to the people, what happened? Well, yeah, the, yeah. People, so, the people yeah. defeat the politicians. That's the fundamental, yeah. That is the fundamental basis of my optimism, long-range optimism, that, that we're, an intelligent, we're an intelligent, mildly progressive country, um, reasonably decent and quite able to deal with logic. We're not very good at abstract... Um, abstract logic. We like to see we like to see things in practical operation to judge their worth. But in the end, we will defeat the politicians and have change. But we live in a country where the political system, for the most part, has to be defeated in order to get the kind of change which, in countries like Canada and New Zealand, is kind of par for the course. Here, it's peculiarly difficult, and that's one of the one of the things that greatly interests me, is yeah. that difficulty and the way we overcome it. And the equal marriage vote um, was a perfect example of that. The equal marriage vote was designed by conservatives in the government who didn't want the result that came about, but knew that result had to come about. And it was a device, I mean, Matthias Cormann was one of the principal architects of it, and Peter Dutton was one of the principal architects of it, because they wanted to get it off the agenda. It was a way of doing it. It was a way of retreating. And, and, and we got there. And for all the pain, I'm so pleased that this number is there. George, numbers, 62%. Bloody good number. And every state and territory. And every state and territory. Yeah. Yeah, I know it's okay. plebiscite, but it was quite extraordinary. But shall, we give the, shall we give the crowd yeah, we'll give them hungry to ask questions? Um, I guess, I guess, you know, to, just to tie this little loose end, yep. for all the Howard, wouldn't call it manipulation, but whatever it is you want to call it, in the long run it doesn't stick, right? So maybe the, maybe the question about radical conservatism versus, you know, Australia sort of zigzagging towards some progressive some of future. Sticks, some of it sticks and some of it doesn't. Yeah. I mean, what he brought to Canberra was retail race politics. And that, unfortunately, has stuck. I think that's stuck. Um, before that, from the end of the white Australia policy until Howard, um, He's certainly the that, kind of, yeah. that kind of grubby race politics was not played in Canberra. It was played in Brisbane and it was played in Sydney. Played particularly in Perth, but it wasn't played in Canberra. And it is still now main game in Canberra. And that is an enduring legacy of Howard's. All righty. How many questions, Sean, do we think we'll, we need? For one or two, and then yours will be your last We'll get another question. Oh, okay. This gentleman. Well, thank you for saying your uh, delicious uh, revelations about the faith-based discrimination. And uh, I was wondering whether you are currently writing an obituary for the power of the church, or uh, will you be uh, pouring the drinks at the wake? Mm. When I see when I see those conservatives like Tony Abbott and various other people talk about Western civilization, and um, and uh, you know the Ramsey Centre trying to find somewhere that will take its huge amount of money on the terms it sets, and Western civilization. Um, I think, you know, for me, Western civilization um, has has grown out of a curious interplay between the church and the forces that have fought the church, fought it and fought and fought the church on behalf of science and of learning and of freedom and of decency and good sense, particularly in the areas of sexual relations. That for me is Western society, but I will never write the obituary of the church because faith never dies. Human beings are insatiable God makers and they will keep on making gods and we have to be very careful of the gods they make. But that's not gonna stop. I'm very glad you're not going to write the obituary of the church. As a Uniting Church minister, I'd like to stay in a job. Um, we, I asked you this question before the marriage vote about, you wrote an article in The Guardian saying if only the church has put as much effort into asylum seekers and refugees yep. as we put into same-sex marriage. And I think I commented at the time, we do. Like, 
we've been arrested over it. It's just that the government doesn't listen to us on it. And I asked you for advice on what we could do, and you had none. But that was before the postal poll. Do you think <laughs> there's something we can learn from the fact that we did actually get marriage equality? I don't okay. think that that's going to help. I don't think that's going to help <laughs> refugee issues. Um, yes, look, I, I know the churches do. And the Catholic Church, as well as the Uniting Church, the Anglican Church, not to such a great extent, have been tireless advocates um, for refugees. The Catholic Church has been one of the great agencies in the history of this country to deal with racial, racial tension and, and racial bigotry. On the other hand, those, their politicians in Canberra aren't willing to bust the joint on behalf of refugees. Willing, they were willing to bust the joint to stop anything being done about global warming, but they won't bust the joint for refugees. Nor do I expect any time soon that the Anglican Synod of Sydney will give a million dollars for a campaign to bring refugees to this country. Um, both of these things happen, and it's part, very early on, very early on as a, as a journalist, I had a wonderful editor called Max Such, and Max said to me, ah, David, if you uh, don't acknowledge the contradictions in nearly everything you ever write about, in people and in events, you will never get them right. And I've believed in that. Everything, you, our accounts of this country and of its people and its politics are not convincing unless we acknowledge the contradictions. And that's one of the contradictions of faith is that it does do a lot of good, but, but the organisations of faith have done extraordinary harm in this country, and God bless Julia Gillard for revealing part of it. Um, my view on religious freedom, you don't need laws to protect you doing nice things to people. You only need laws when you are planning to do nasty things to people. But I don't think, I don't know what you think about this, George, but I don't think there is any prospect of the churches getting anything like the kinds of laws they want um, to protect their ethos. You throw me to the religious freedom question, but can I take the asylum seeker question? Yep. Can I add to it? Um, politicians generally don't move in their community as much as they used to, and it's, there's many structural impediments, and one is the need to feed the media beast and a lot of the, a lot of the sort of the virtual work they do in governing. Um, a lot of politicians still turn up at churches because they think it's a good look. So Keep I'd be, preaching. I'd be nagging them. Another and thing. I'd make them feel uncomfortable about coming again. Um, but that, that, is, that, is, that is your classic grassroots advocacy. And you've, um, probably unbeknownst to them and to you, you've got a better platform than most citizens do at that level of engagement. But the other thing as well is that we are, we know this, we know this without me needing to say it, is that the, the community is changing its mind about Manus and Nauru. And a friend of mine, um, one of the really good um, political analysts that goes out and does focus groups and things, was up in, up in, um, Peter Dutton's seat um, in the weeks when Dutton looked like, you know, he might be the next Prime Minister of Australia. And one of the things that she, and she was talking to groups of uncommitted voters, and one of the things that they were telling her very clearly is that they are really sick of Manus and Nauru, that it's not only cruel, but it's expensive. Both parts of the argument are starting to grip. And I think one of the reasons why we've seen a large number of children being taken off Nauru um, is uh, exactly because Australia is slowly getting it right. It'll take a bit more time, but we will get there. Hi. Um, in some ways, you touched on this earlier, but um, I was wondering, because it said that history can tell us something about the future, uh, whether you had any musings about um, what the future holds for Australia, and I'll leave that kind of broad, but whether you want to talk about Australian lives or politics or? Oh, look, um, 
I think Australia will continue to be a paradise for the prosperous in this corner of the world. Um, and uh, I think we're, we have a glorious future, and I, even when we're not based on coal. Um, and, but, but I'm very, I'm very loath to, to make predictions because um, what events are going to happen? I mean, what, what could happen to this world before we get out of the Trump era? What, what might happen to this world before we're done with him? Um, I think this is not a time for predictions, but I just think, you know, we're orderly, we're prosperous, we're quite a sensible country, we, you know, we're not as nasty as we sometimes look, we're going to get through all of this okay, um, we've got to deal with race, we've got big problems dealing with race, um, uh, but once you've dealt with sex, you can get on to dealing with race, and, you know, I think the future is looking, is looking wonderful. I am worried about 2025, um, but I've been asked this question before, and I, I just would like Australia to be just like the pimble I was born in, but nicer. You know, just a bit nicer, a bit fairer, a bit kinder. Um, but we'll see. I mean, we just have to record this as it, as it moves forward and make sense of the wonderful confusion that is daily life in this country, try to make sense of it. Um, that's the job. I've got about six final questions in my head, but I think what I'll do is I'll what give you... Okay, we can get one more. We've got room for one more. Yeah. I actually wanted to give you... Uh, question with she brought a combination of Melbourne determination and Melbourne politeness to the way she <laughs> had her hand up that <laughs> scared you. me a bit. I'm just wondering if self-interest is taking over all of that. Uh, I've been handing out pre-polling and a lady said to me today, yes, she agreed that the Labour and Liberal were, that, that they should be taking on climate change, but she had shares. Uh, she had shares. Does she have grandchildren? She did. She yes, did. That, that's the great so contest. I mean, really, in some ways, the great contest in Australian life at the moment is between your grandkids and your BHP shares. <laughs> and, you know... Um, before we do book signings, we've yeah. already sold the books, but I think we're going to sign some books. We can sign some books. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, give me your top three and your bottom three. So I don't know why I've picked three, but the three most inspiring um, Australians you've written, studied, observed, and the three you wish we didn't have the three, on, our, on the three, these pages. Three most inspiring. There's yeah. not a lot in this book about Patrick White. There is one essay I wrote um, after, after the death of his partner and the miraculous discovery that his literary executor, Barbara Mobbs, whose loyalty was unimpeachable throughout her time serving Patrick, had disobeyed him and had not destroyed his papers and <laughs> brought them to the National Library. And um, at, for me, that was, I mean, Patrick is the wisest person I've ever got to know well, apart from my father, um, who was a very wise man, but, but I've loved writing about Patrick. I've loved writing about about, um, about golf in various ways. Um, to be, yeah, I've loved writing about golf in many ways. Um, and I've loved, I've loved writing about um, the great work of Julia Gillard in the Royal Commission, um, grim, grim as it is. I mean, mm. that's, to, be, to be a witness of that is real. That's real change. That's really the machinery of change. But the people I wish had never been around in Australia, continue to fascinate me, completely fascinate me. I think, yep. you know, Tony Abbott is the most useless politician of any of our lifetimes. Um, he's, he is destructive of institutions, destructive, destructive as, a, as a great conservative, of course, destructive of convention. Um, and his victory, his election victory was the most useless election victory I think, um, of my entire career, because having got there brilliantly, he didn't have a clue what to do. You know, he knew how to get there. He absolutely knew how to get there, but he didn't have a clue what to do. But yet I'm fascinated by that. You had a better engagement with him in the quarterly essay than you did with Kevin. Ah, oh, Kevin, yes. Well, yeah. Kevin and I came to blows a bit. Um, <laughs> and Kevin has his explanation and I have mine. Um, it's off the record. 
Uh, <laughs> That's his explanation, isn't it? Sorry. We, we, oh, no, 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 it's not that. It's not that. Um, we, we met up at the end of my writing about writing, following him around for the quarterly essay. We met up in Mackay and, we, and in the afternoon we walked along the beach and we had a remarkably frank and interesting discussion. It was off the record. I couldn't report it, but I could use you know, the information that I gleaned from it. And then we went and had dinner and um, in this hotel dining room and it was, and he said, now David, tell me, what is the argument of your essay? And I thought, you know, I'm sitting here with the Prime Minister, he's asking me what the argument of my essay is, and man to man, I think we've established a rapport where I can tell him frankly that I'm puzzled by his great efforts and his, his, um, his um, mediocre outcomes. And um, at which a switch in him and he just went me. Cold, not loud, no one on a surrounding table could have known what was going on. He just went me. And I thought, this is wonderful. I had no <laughs> idea how I was going to end the essay. And now... <laughs> I, it's the juice I've got, not in just, his machine. I've, got, I've, I've <laughs> not just got the revelation that anger is this, that, that really drives this man, but I've got my final scene. But, that's not as Kevin remembers it. And I have to say, and I, look, and, and I apologise to the representatives of the book trade here, but I have not purchased his two volumes of, bi of autobiography. But I did, in a vain way that some people do. Um, Check whether you're in it. I checked um, my own name in it. By the way, <laughs> because we knew that Bob Hawke always did this with any book ever, um, my first book, a biography of Garfield Barwick, um, and my wonderful publisher, now alas dead, John Ironmonger, it was his suggestion, let's put in the index, Hawk, RJL, no mention of. <laughs> <laughs> and we did. And Blanche Del Puget, <laughs> then his mistress, later his wife, observed him opening the book at the back and going for his name. It was a total victory. He was furious. But anyway, I looked up my name. I looked up my name in the index of volume two of it, and I discovered that the reason I wrote a critical quarterly essay of him was that on the walk on the beach, I had asked him whether he'd been sexually abused in his boarding school, and I did indeed ask him, and he said no, he'd been beaten very badly, physically abused, but not sexually abused. And Kevin's explanation for the attitude I took to him and his government was that I had failed to give him the opening paragraph that I really desired, which was a confession of sexual abuse. Well, that explains it all. And you read that and you think, what in God's name is going through your mind, you poor man? Um, anyway, um, that's you know just bizarre, that's Kevin. But I'm fascinated by Kevin. But I had a happier encounter with, with um, Tony Abbott, who is hopeless. I mean, hopeless. The one asset he really had was this, clay, this promise to the Australian people that he was not a politician like other politicians, that he would never break his word, never break his word, that he could be completely trusted. He came to power in 2013 and put through a budget in 2014 that broke every promise he'd ever made to the Australian people. He was just dead meat from that moment. Um, he was hopeless, but fascinating. I mean, the charm of Tony Abbott is unbelievable. He's an extraordinarily charming man. Um, and I'm very interested always in the, in the contrast in politicians between their public persona and for some of the worst of them, this extraordinary charm that they can turn on. Um, and some of the best of them are completely charmless. Um, but some of the worst have this kind of, charm is a, we should write more about charm in we politics. Write about charm. Um, Patrick White loathed charm. It was, one of the, it was one of the things I came to admire in him hugely. He was without charm. <laughs> and, and, it is a, and it is a possession, position of immense strength, without charm. And he used to say to me, oh, David, you're charm. <laughs> Brutal verdict. Um, but charm is perhaps a subject for another book. Um, but not now. Okay. I think we've voluntarily gone over time, but I, you know when you can feel the rumours listening? I think they've been listening to you all night. 
They're dying go to go home, George. The people here whose slow-cooked lamb meals are burning <laughs> as we speak. Ladies and gentlemen, give it up for David Maher. And please thank George Megalogenis. Thank you.